Hey everyone, this is James Wilson with MTV Strength Training Systems and BikeJames.com and welcome to another edition of the Bike James Podcast. This podcast, I'm actually coming to you from the new Catalyst Training Facility. Between uh, the last time that I talked to you and now, my wife and I found a space here in Fruta to open up an actual physical location for MTV Strength Training Systems. Now, uh, for a long time, I've been working mostly online. I've got a really good gym set up in my garage that I was able to uh, work with people out of that setup as well. But it was a little limited for doing uh, larger scale things like workshops and clinics. And I also didn't have the space that I wanted to also combine the skills training stuff. And so we were really pumped to find a, uh, a spot in Fruta that allows me to uh, create a facility that's going to give riders a unique chance to combine their on-bike and off-bike training. So again, like I said, it's uh, the, the, the space, it's on a third of an acre, so we actually have enough room on site to work on uh, skills drills. So things like cornering and body position and manualing and bunny hopping, you know, all the, the basic core skills we can work on and use different drills and stuff on site uh, to work on. But we also have a, uh, a, a training facility here as well. So there's a small building. It's not, you know, very big, just big enough to get a few riders in here, which is perfect for what I'm looking to do. But uh, we're able to get in the facility and use the strength and mobility training to help riders move better and understand the core movements behind the skills better. And so we're able to work not just on your fitness or not just on your skills, but actually combine these two things together uh, to yeah, just give you a better idea of how you move both on and off the bike and how those things apply. So, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, body position, I talk about this a lot, how the hip hinge and your ability to get down low and like your attack position is really important. And a lot of riders struggle with that hip hinge. So, you know, if we're trying to work on your basic body position or even more advanced skills, because your basic body position is, is the core skill behind a lot of higher level skills. And so if you don't have good, strong, balanced body position, it's tough to execute other skills like cornering and manualing and jumping. So, uh, you know, so we start looking at your body position, but a lot of times it's not a matter of knowing what to do. It's not a skill problem. It's a movement problem. And so if someone's having trouble getting into a good body position on their bike and maintaining that, I can pull them off the bike, take them through some movement drills to see, like I said, is this a movement issue or is this a skill issue? Because those two things are not the same. And that's, you know, really one of the big problems that I see in the, the mountain bike skills training industry in general is an inability for coaches to distinguish between these two things. Is this rider suffering from a movement problem or a skill problem? Because if you lack excuse me, if you lack the fundamental uh, skill or movement skills that go into the bike skills, then you're always going to struggle. You're, you're always going to be trying to memorize techniques and things, which shows that you don't really understand the techniques. When you really understand how to move properly, it's easier to apply these things to the bike. And so by getting you off of the bike and doing some, uh, like I said, some drills and some exercises that help get you moving better and give you a better idea of how that movement feels because that's really what it's all about. It's how does it feel? 
if you're, you know, your body can recognize feelings much quicker than it can process step one, step two, step three. And so good movement has a certain feel to it. And so by focusing on that feel uh, with your strength and mobility training, and then also applying that feel to your bike, that's the fastest way to develop your skills and the best way to do it sustainably because you're really building that that uh, foundation, that, that real foundation of understanding movement as opposed to trying to memorize movement, which aren't the same things. Obviously, you have to try to memorize some things on the way to understanding things, but there is a difference between memorizing something and really understanding it. And so, uh, again, that's kind of the gap that I see with a lot of riders. Um, and again, you know, if you're trying to improve your fitness, but you don't move well on your bike and your skills suck, Again, it's a, you're, it's a moot point, right? Like, so we want to have both ends going. And so by having the facility here, uh, I'll have the chance to work with riders who are either in the Fruta and Grand Junction area or come to this area. Because again, Fruta and Grand Junction, this area offers some of the best riding in the country. So we have a lot of people that come through this area already. And it's really not that uh, hard to convince riders to book a trip here to, uh, to get a little training. So um, yeah, really excited about that. The other thing that I'm excited about is I'm, the, the facility, the training stuff that I'm going to be doing is going to be focusing on kind of a new training system that I've been working on over the last few years. And it really uh, focuses on using steel maces, uh, resistance bands, and isometric training. And using these three modalities to create uh, training programs because I've really started to realize that uh, not all tension is created equal. And there's different types of tension <clears throat> excuse me, that you need on the trail and that you need to work on off of the trail as well. So the one that you know, we're most familiar with is kind of the high tension uh, compression grind type tension. So if you're doing like a deadlift or a squat or a lunge, like these are, uh, you know, the load is directly, you know, on you and there's kind of this uh, grinding element to it. So that high tension um, aspect is one thing that you need to work on. And we're able to work on this extremely safely and I think more effectively using isometric training. I've talked about this a lot in the recent past about how isometrics allow you to train this high tension component. Because remember, we're just trying to train the body to develop high levels of tension because that's that core basis for strength. So the, the, the skill of creating tension is different than the skill of applying it to a movement. So that I, the idea with the high tension stuff is to train that. And so you also have higher speed power-based uh, tension that you need to use. And this is a different thing. So again, thinking like kettlebell swing versus a deadlift. It's, uh, it's the similar movement pattern but the type of tension being produced and that your body has to produce to create the movement is different. And so for me, this is where the bands come in. The bands are also great for isometric training, but you can also use them for dynamic movement training. And because the bands get harder as you stretch them, you have to move with a little speed and a little quickness because you have to race that tension to the top. So the bands are a great way to work on your movement while applying some of this power element as well. And then finally you have your steel maces which work on your leverage-based training. And so again, like leverage-based training is like trying to handle a, a, a sledgehammer, right? If you've ever picked up a sledgehammer, you know it doesn't take a very heavy sledgehammer, 10, 15 pounds, and that thing feels super, super heavy. 
And the reason for that is the leverage-based loading that it creates where you have the weight off at one end and it's very misloaded. And so it's kind of like a farm boy strength versus gym boy strength. A lot of the, the gym strength is this high tension compressive stuff that I talked about. A lot of the farm boy strength is this leverage-based tension. You're out on the farm, you're slinging hay bales, you're you know digging with a shovel, you're uh, you know, just all the stuff that, you you know, uh, single arm farmers walks, carrying buckets of stuff around, you know, all of these things create a leverage based load on the body. And this leverage based loading is, is much more specific to athletic loading, the type of loads that you're going to face in, in athletics. And especially as mountain bikers, a lot of the leverage or a lot of the tension that we face on the bike is this uneven leverage based tension. And so by covering all three of these bases, by understanding these three types of tension, the high tension, the, uh, the you know, higher speed kind of power tension, and then your leverage-based tension, and then using these tools to uh, you know, figure out where's the weak link and create programs that address all three types of tension is something that I've been uh, working on over the last couple years and have uh, yeah had really good results both personally, both personally and with some of the people that I've been using this stuff with. So my facility is going to pretty much focus on this stuff, these um, these tools. And so again, not only if you get a chance to come here and train, uh, will you get a chance to experience this? But I'm going to be able to do a lot more work as far as videos and programs and things that are uh, you know based on these tools and, and kind of helping to share. The, the knowledge and the experiences that I'm having with helping other people uh, with these tools and these these methods as well. So um, yeah, excited about that. I, I will say we we'll probably will not have any kettlebells here. I've really kind of gotten to the point where I uh, you know kettlebells aren't bad tools, but there's definitely more um, effective ways to achieve your uh, some of these goals. And so uh, kind of moved beyond kettlebells again if you give me a kettlebell i can definitely still train the hell out of you with one but when i'm starting from scratch and i gotta like buy equipment and outfit my gym uh it was funny i really you know was talking with my wife and a couple other of my uh training friends and realized that uh yeah i don't think i'm gonna invest in kettlebells because i can't really see what i'm gonna do with kettlebells that i can't do even more effectively with uh, the, the training tools that I'm getting, the steel maces, the resistance bands. And then we're also using jujitsu belts to create the isometric exercises where you're you know, pulling and pushing on those things and, and they're not moving. So, um, so anyways, yeah, it's uh, um, going to be fun bringing that. And you know, just in general, we're going to be doing consulting. So if you have a specific problem, um, you know, like uh, either skills or fitness related and you just want to get some insight and some ideas on what might be going on and things that you can do better, uh, program design, um, you know, be doing a lot of workshops and also be doing a clinic. Yeah, I'll be uh, putting out more on this um, over the, the next few months, but in September, I think that's what we've got circle on the calendar right now is I'm going to be having a, a skills clinic, a skills and fitness clinic. So, you know, going to be having five riders come and spend uh, a few days here really digging in deep to, uh, to what I do, man. Digging into, you know, breathing, mobility, uh, these, these new training uh, methods that I've been developing, um, applying all of this to the bike, doing the skills training on site. 
So to be really, I don't, I don't, can't think that there's any other experience in the mountain biking world quite like what this clinic is going to be. So again, uh, I'm looking forward to that. So now last thing, and then I'll move on because I know you guys didn't tune in and just hear me, uh, you know, go on and on about my new training facility, but you can tell I'm pretty excited about it and, and what it kind of, the, the future holds for it. But I will be hosting a free workout on Thursday mornings. And so, again, if you're in the, the Fruit of Grand Junction area or you're going to be visiting um, Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m., I'm going to be here at the facility. Door's going to be open. We're going to be doing a basic workout, uh, you know, a lot of mobility-focused stuff, just some basic, some basic stuff, just kind of having some fun. We might pull out the bikes and start doing a little uh, on-bike work, you know, just kind of depending upon, um, you know, who's here and, and what we want to do. But, uh, yeah, I'd like to just go ahead and start inviting people to come and uh, take us up or take me up on on the free workout you can let me know you're coming uh, by sending me an email at james at bikejames.com or uh, like i said if you're in the area we'll be getting more info on where we're at but just stop on in and and uh, anyways hope to see and hear from some some of you guys coming in and uh, checking the place out so uh, all right so moving on to something else so I got a few things on the agenda for this podcast. I've got a writer Q&A question that uh, I'm going to dig into on the difference between speed and power. Uh, I'm going to talk about some skill stuff um, going into why your handlebars are too wide. And if you've uh, you know been following my stuff over the last couple of weeks, you've seen me post a video and a few things on this uh, subject, but I just kind of wanted to dive into it a little bit more on the podcast here. Uh, in training, I'm going to talk about the some of the stuff I've been doing with the resistance bands, where I've been combining isometrics and and, and reps, and you know, just kind of uh, what I've been doing and why I've been doing it, and, and yeah, just kind of give you some ideas there. I got some bro science coming up on the role of emotions and your pacing strategy. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's uh, everything I got on the list. So let's go ahead and uh, dig into it here. So the rider Q&A this week uh, came from a rider who was asking, it was kind of a roundabout way, but he was asking about his power and basically how did power apply to speed? He was training to become a more powerful rider and he was a little confused as to why when he went from road riding to mountain biking his power numbers weren't the same and you know how much this was going to affect him as far as his speed went and again like it was kind of a roundabout question but it really got me realizing and thinking out a few other um, interactions that kind of confirm this as well is that a lot of riders are kind of confused on the role of power with speed and they kind of think that they are the same things that power and, and speed are, are like a one-to-one -one thing you increase your power you're going to increase your speed you want to increase your speed focus on increasing your power like that's the the thought process and what happens is is you start to get a little confused as to what is your actual goal is it speed or power and is speed solely determined by power so um you know the really speed and power are different like i said I, I've, I've said this already but power is part of your speed right but they're not the exact same thing now wh what happened here what, what's going on 
what happened is, is people started to analyze fast riders and they say, okay, what are the characteristics of a fast rider? And among other things, they found that faster riders have higher power outputs. And so the, the thought process goes, okay, fast riders have high power outputs. So therefore, if you want to be a fast rider, you need to focus on a higher power output. And so that was where the whole power training idea came from, is that you can use power to, and focus on power as far as like what you're trying to improve with your training because increases in power will increase your speed. But again, somewhere along the lines, things got flipped and speed wasn't the goal, power was. It kind of became subjective to power. You were going to train for power above and everything, right? You know, whether it's increasing your power or your functional uh, power threshold or, you know, your ability to sustain power at certain heart rates, whatever it is, like power became the goal. And so you're training for power forgetting that, well, that's just part of it. You may not necessarily be getting faster um, because of it. And so, you know, as a, as a thought experiment, right, to kind of prove my point, if I told you, hey, I will make you faster, but you're going to lose 10% of your power. Like, you know, when they check your power output, so they check all the stuff, you're going to lose 10% of that. But your Strava times, your actual, like, you know, performance in racing is going to improve by 10%. You know, one, people would be like, I'll explain more kind of how this works, but would you take that? And what's interesting is like, I, I honestly believe there's some people out there that would have to think about it for a second. Like they're so enamored with power. They're so addicted to being able to tell people, this is how much power I laid down. And this is what my functional power threshold is. And, you know, all of these things focused on power that it, it's almost like a virtue signal among serious riders. Like, yo, man, what kind of power are you put down? You know, kind of like the bench press among, uh, you know, bros in the gym. And so if you were to, you know, uh, take away some of that, it takes away some of that virtue signal. And, and again, you can say, oh, man, I'm faster on the trail. And they'll just kind of look at you and be like, oh, whatever, man. You know, you're, you're losing power. There's no way you can be faster. But I would argue that, and honestly, there's a lot of riders out there who would actually get faster and benefit from less time training for power. And more time working on skills and other specific things like uh, mobility, uh, grip strength endurance, which has been shown in one study to have a direct, like the largest direct impact on your performance whenever your, your bike is pointed downhill, right? So if you're a downhill racer or, you know, you're an enduro racer where you're getting scored on your, your downhill, uh, you know, these downhill sections or just any type of rider, right? Like any ride is going to have sections where you're going downhill. Your grip strength endurance becomes the number one determining factor, even more than power, on how well you're going to perform on those sections. And so if you're not training that, then you're not training for those sections. And so, you know, you may not be getting faster on that. I feel that power, it's kind of like your deadlift in the gym, right? Like there's a threshold where the, the, the energy to benefit ratio starts to drop dramatically, right? So if you're below a certain threshold, right? Like if you can't even deadlift your body weight, then you need to work on getting stronger on your deadlift. But once you get to the point where you can deadlift around, you know, one and a half, you know, maybe two times your body weight, you're probably plenty strong enough in the deadlift. And you continuing to focus on spending more time increasing your deadlift strength 
you're, you know, like going from double to two and a half times or three times your body weight, you're not going to see this dramatic increase in performance like you did from going from not even being able to, to deadlift your body weight to being like double body weight deadlift, right? So it's not a straight line. A lot of these things have a point of diminishing returns and power is like that. It's, you know, it's like, you know, if we looked and we said, hey, you know, the top downhill guys have good deadlifts. And so now deadlifting became the focus and everybody turned into like power lifters because power lifters are the best deadlifters and we need to get better at our deadlift. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're missing the point. We're still mountain bikers. We're not professional deadlifters. And that's the thing here. We are mountain bikers. We're not professional power trainers. Like that's not what we're doing. That's not where our fun or, or you know, what we're doing for, for competition comes from. It's not a measure of who can produce the most power. It's who is the fastest. And so you, there, like I said, if you are spending a lot of time focusing on power-based training and you're not spending much time focusing on strength, you're not spending much time focusing on skills, you're not spending much time focusing on mobility, I guarantee you that if you backed off some of the, you took time away from this, you know, all this power training and you focused on these other things, you may see a little decrease in your power, but you would actually see an increase in your performance on the trail. And so this happens with a lot of things where there's something that we know that if we work on and improve, it can help us in another area, but things get flipped and you start, you, you lose focus of what the original objective was. And so with this, in this case, we're trying to get faster on the trail. Okay. And so again, we're not dirt roadies. This is another thing is that for a road rider, you probably will see more of that one-to-one increase in power to increase in speed um, relationship. But for mountain bikers, it's way fuzzier, super fuzzy when it comes to that because there's so many other factors that determine your speed on the trail. And so just don't get sucked into overly focusing on increasing your power and actually let that start to affect um, your speed on the trail by not spending time focusing on, uh, on some of these other things. So speaking of other things that can actually increase your speed on the trail, uh, in the skills training portion of the podcast here, I want to talk about why your handlebars are too wide. And I posted a video. I cannot encourage you enough to go watch the video. Talk is cheap. In the end, seeing how your hand width affects your movement and ability to maintain a strong, stable position on the bike is worth, you know, more than a million words, right? So go watch the video. You can go to bikejames.com, Google your handlebars are too wide, a case study, not Google, I guess you can Google it too, but just do the search on the Bike James site for your handlebars are too wide, a case study, and you'll see the video. And basically what it is, is my wife uh, got a new bike, and on the bike, it came with 30 inch wide handlebars, which are like 760 millimeters wide. And that is pretty standard for a trail bike to come with these days. I have seen an epidemic of riders riding handlebars that are way, way too wide for them. And so for her, 30 inches is way too wide. She's like 5'4". And so uh, we, we needed to cut those handlebars down. And so it gave me a good chance to show everyone, look, this is what I'm talking about. When you're on the bike and your hands are too wide, 
This is how it is affecting your movement and your strength and stability. And so I get her on the bike and you can, I have her move through a full range of motion in her cockpit. So she goes from basically a tall standing position down to a deep attack position, you know, tall standing, deep attack. And so you kind of work in between like a squat pattern and a hip hinge pattern, like moving your hips, sliding your hips forward and back, which raise and lower your shoulders. That's how you move through in your cockpit. That's the, the, the strong, safe, stable, balanced way to move when you're on your bike uh, through your, your range of motion um, on your cockpit. And so you could see with the 30 inch bars, I measured what her effective range of motion was. And you could see that as she came down, she wasn't able to get her chin all the way down to the stem without allowing her shoulder blades to disengage and round up and her elbows to flare straight out to the side. Now, if she did that, she could get all the way down. But that is not a strong, stable position for your, uh, for your body in that range of motion. If you were in the gym and you were doing push-ups uh, and you had a decent trainer, they would not allow you to do that. They would have you adjust your hand width so that you could keep your shoulders uh, packed, keep your shoulder blades tucked down. Uh, so that you don't let them round up because as soon as you do that, you're placing a lot of stress on the, on the shoulders, a lot of stress on the neck. You're uh, taken away from the, the big strong muscles moving the, the movement or, or you know, powering the movement. And so your hand position is directly tied to this. You get your hands too wide and this happens. And what it is, is it, we have a combination of things. You've got well-meaning advice because handlebars used to be pretty narrow. And so if your hands are narrow and you have a weak upper back, the compensation is to let your elbows cave in so that they're compressed against your ribs. And this gives you a little compression to uh, help make up for the lack of stability. And so the advice was to get your elbows out and you know, get them away from your ribs. Don't let them, don't let them touch your ribs. And so people got their elbows out but somewhere along the lines, the elbows just kept getting wider and wider and wide handlebars allowed you to get your elbows wider. And so now you're getting people who are telling you to point your elbows basically straight out to the side and resulting in what I, I jokingly refer to as the scarecrow posture. Like you look like you could pick these riders up and put them on a scarecrow stand, you know, with the way their elbows are out to the side and their hands are down. Um, you know, they look like riding scarecrows. But this scarecrow posture is not... Uh, good. It is. It represents a bad shoulder position and bad elbow position. And so the uh, again, when things have just kind of gone too far in the wrong direction, I went with it. I had super wide bars as well. Started to cut them down when I just I was having some issues with um, elbow pain. It just didn't quite feel right. And then finally, the, the the clicker for me really was when I started working with the steel mace. And when you start working with leverage-based loads, which again, I talked about earlier, leverage-based loads are much more specific to what we're facing on the trail than compression-based loads. And so a leverage-based load, you learn real quick when you're holding that mace, especially when you're doing, trying to do things like the row, uh, the counter row, um, you know, like the, the, the steel mace deadlift hip hinge movement. All of these, if you want to, if your hands are too wide or too narrow, you lose range of motion and you lose strength and stability with the mace. And so for me, that was the big aha where I was like, man, I'm really missing out, especially in cornering where you're really dealing with a heavy leverage-based load through the handlebars that my wide hands were affecting my ability to move 
and, and handle these leverage-based loads effectively. And so I ended up cutting my handlebars down to, I think it's like uh, 710 millimeters. Um, it's like you know, 28 inches, I think, is what, uh, um, is, is what I cut them down to. But, uh, you know, again, everyone thought that I was crazy. Like when I walked into the shop and told them we're chopping my handlebars down to, you know, 28 inches, the, the, they thought I was joking. And I was like, no, man, do it. I, I, got, a, I got a hunch. And sure enough, the first ride out, oh, I felt so much better. My elbows felt better. My shoulders felt better. My neck felt better. And I could definitely tell my, my stability in corners was increased as well because my arms and my hands were in a much better position to deal with the leverage-based load that you have at the bars when you are uh, cornering. And so, um, again, man, you, like I said, talk is cheap, though. You can go and you can see in that video how my wife's movement is affected. And then what we do is we get her down on the ground. I have her do a push-up, and we measure that width. And I have her move her hands out a little bit at a time until we, found how, until we find how wide can she go until she starts to lose that stability. She starts to compromise her shoulder position at the bottom. And then that's where we want to cut the bars. And so for her, we ended up cutting off about three inches. We went down to a 27 inch bar, which is like 685 millimeters, um, which again is by today's standards is ridiculously narrow. Like I don't know too many other people out there that run uh, bars under 700 millimeters, but I think that especially women, small riders, if you're running over 700 millimeter bars, it's definitely affecting your movement and your stability on the bike. Now, <clears throat> here's it again, the, the thing, the other thing that we're dealing with, one, I, the first thing was elbows out advice kind of gone uh, awry, right? Like a little elbows out is good. Elbows all the way out to the side must be better, which is, is, not, um, is not true. The other thing that we're dealing with is a, um, a population of people, uh, I mean, just people in general, have weak upper backs. Right? Their core strength and their upper back strength is not good. And so just people in general are there. And so mountain bikers are full of you know, people in general. And so mountain bikers typically have some issues with their upper back strength and core strength in general. And so one of the common compensations for people that lack upper back stability is to put their hands out wide and put their elbows out wide because now they have suspended their upper body between their hands. But there's a difference between suspending your upper body and stabilizing your upper body. You want to stabilize your upper body between your hands, not suspend it. So again, you walk into, you know, this is a super common compensation for kids, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, female athletes, because female athletes tend to have weaker upper backs and cores compared to uh, their male counterparts. So when you watch a lot of, uh, you know, like I said, kids in general, but especially females, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, young girls doing push-ups, you'll see this compensation where their hands are out wide in line with their face and their elbows are out wide. And you'll see their shoulders are rounded up. It's not good posture, but they're able to do something that looks like a push-up. And it, so again, people let them get away with it because it looks like they're you know, doing something that looks like a push-up, but all they're doing is creating that suspension between their hands to make up for their lack of stability. And this is the exact same thing that you're seeing on the bike. If you get a rider who does not have good upper back stability 
and you get their hands out wide and you get their elbows out wide, they're gonna feel a little more stable because they're suspending their upper body between these points. But you can see that as they go to move and actually create dynamic movement from that posture, it compromises it. You cannot be as strong, you cannot move as well, you cannot be as powerful from that compensatory uh, posture. And so, you know, again, maybe the answer isn't wider handlebars, it is to work on your push-ups and your upper back strength and that that is going to allow you to uh, get your hands in a better position on the bike and, and maintain the strength and stability. So again, I challenge you to check the video out. I challenge you to uh, do the test. If you cannot do a push-up one, it, that's an indicator you need to get in the gym and work on your push-ups. If you're trying to ride a mountain bike, man, you can't do 10 perfect uh, push-ups. Not these crappy push-ups when people are doing like 50 and they're just, you know, I'm talking like perfect all the way down, chest almost hitting the deck, all the way up, it, you know, if you can't do 10 perfect push-ups like that and you're trying to ride a mountain bike, you are handicapping yourself. Like that is like mountain biking requires a lot of upper body and core strength. And, and the push-up is one of the most basic uh, expressions of that. And so again, if you don't have that basic thing behind you and you're trying to get out on the trail, you're, it, you're, it's going to be harder. Like riding is going to be harder for you and not as much fun as it could and should be if you had this basic thing in place. And so, um, you know, make sure that you've got that in place and then worry about it. But if you can't do a push up, what I would recommend is use a high plank. So, where you get up at like the top of your push up position and then do the same thing. And if you need to, have someone watch you, watch your shoulder blades. And as soon as your hands go out wide enough to where your shoulder blades start to round up and disengage and come up towards your head, that's too wide. And I will almost guarantee you that. Everyone listening to this, uh, almost everyone listening to this, is, if you guys did this test, you're going to find that your handlebars are too wide. So, you know, check it. Like I said, the proof is in the pudding. Talk is cheap. Try the test yourself. Watch the video yourself and then, uh, and then see what you think. But um, odds are you would actually improve your strength, stability, range of motion, all sorts of things on your bike if you chopped your handlebars down a, uh, a little bit. So anyways... Um, on to our next uh, subject here, which is the, uh, the training. And what I wanted to do was share some of the stuff that I've been doing, like I said, with the resistance bands. So first, I guess we just need to kind of uh, clear up. When I'm talking about the resistance bands, I'm talking about the big, giant rubber band looking bands, not the, the rubber tubing that have handles on the end or something like that. So a lot of times you'll see them used for uh, um, assisting pull-ups, or you'll see people using them to add resistance to you know lifts like bench press or deadlifts or something. And so the the bands are something that I have been using on and off for a long, long time. It's kind of one of these things that I get into, and then other shiny things call my attention away from it, and then I kind of wander back to it. And so recently. I got inspired to start using the bands because I wanted a way to increase the intensity of my isometric training. And I also wanted a way to work on um, resisting isometrics. So one of the things with isometrics is that there's two types. There's overcoming, where you're trying to push into something that won't move. And then there's uh, resisting, 
where something's pushing into you and you're not trying and you're trying to not let it move. So again, like, you know, pushing into a wall would be an example of overcoming, you know, you're trying to push the wall over, but that wall is not going to move. An example of resisting would be to like, say, do a bench press and, and lower it down about halfway and then hold it there. And so that weight and gravity is trying to keep pulling down and you're trying to resist the weight pushing into you and keep it from moving. And so these are two different uh, stimuluses for the body, two different ways of adapting to the tension. And so I was already doing the overcoming with the belts for my ramping isometric training. And so I was looking for ways to add in the uh, the resisting. And so using the bands to basically do a lot of the same movements that I was using the belt for what, you know, uh, worked out well. And so I just started playing around with that. And like I said, it, it, uh, it fit the bill, like trying to hold 90 seconds with a band, you know, if you're in your, you know, a deadlift and you got a heavy band and you're, you know, at that halfway mark where your, your hands are just below your knees and that band's trying to pull you back down and you're trying to hold that for 90 seconds, it is a totally different type of intensity than doing that same movement, but I'm standing on my jujitsu belt and I'm trying to break the belt. So both are good. And what I've been doing is, is one day using the, the overcoming with the belt and one day using the resistance with the bands. And, but the, while I was doing this, I started playing around with using the bands for moving with and, and doing some reps. And the reason that I like bands for reps, like it's so funny, man, we get so, uh, confused by external things right like so uh the we we see we love to see things and and draw conclusions based on that right so if we're gonna try and get our hip hinge stronger we want to do a deadlift why man you get to move a lot of weight it looks impressive you're picking this weight up off of the ground um or you know whether you're doing kettlebells whatever it is it's like it's very visual and easy to see now you do that same movement but you're using bands it just it doesn't have the same visual impact as lifting a lot of weight off of the ground. Even though the tension, as far as the body's concerned, it doesn't give a shit, right? Like we're just training tension. And so from the brain's point of view, it's tension is tension. You know, where it's coming from um, is uh, it matters, but it's it, not a huge amount, right? And so if you're doing a deadlift with bands and you're creating a lot of tension and you're doing a deadlift with weights and you're creating a lot of tension, the training effect is, you know, going to be similar, but the bands actually have some advantages. Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier when I was talking about why we use bands at the facility here, they, they get harder as they stretch out. So they, they naturally match your strength curve. You tend to be weaker at the bottom and stronger at the top. And so with a regular weight, whether it's a kettlebell, a, uh, a barbell, dumbbell, whatever it is, it's the same weight, the entire range of motion. So you're only training your weakest, your weakest part of your range of motion. Like again, going back to the deadlift, you're way weaker at the bottom than you are at the top. So by the time you get to the top, that load that was challenging you at the bottom is not really challenging your lockout at the top. And so with bands, you avoid that, right? Like the band gets harder as you come up. So it's easy at the, easier at the bottom as you get to the top and you're stronger, it's stretching out and getting harder. So the tension is actually matching your strength curve. So you're actually training 
your your strength curve more efficiently. You're challenging each portion of the strength curve more with bands than you are with just regular weights. Um, the other thing is that the bands are a little more alive. You know, the the um, the movement feedback that you get from them is different than what you get from a weight because again you have an anchored point and you're, you're moving the bands against that anchored point and so that anchored point of the band gives it uh you, you can tell whether you're moving balanced or not because that anchor point will make gives the band something to pull against so again if you're uh doing your deadlift and you're standing on it your feet standing on the band are that anchor point a deadlift doesn't have an anchor point to the ground Right, like you, with a barbell, you stand up with it and it's free of the ground and there's that no anchor point. So if you start to twist and turn and move with the barbell, or you get to the top and you're not locked out straight uh, because there's no anchor point with the ground, the the weight is doesn't have any way to let you know that you're fucking up, you're doing it wrong. And so you need to uh, with the bands because it has that anchor point as you get to the top. Um, if you're twisting, it lets you know. If you get to the top and you're not standing up in good, strong posture, it lets you know. Your body can tell immediately from the feedback. The bands are more alive is kind of the best way to describe it. Um, again, you know, mimicking the tension that we have to deal with on the trail a lot better. And so, um, so those elements there are, are, are something I really like. And so what I've been doing is combining the isometrics with the movement. And so what I'll do is I'll get in my position, like say, you know, my, uh, again, we'll go back to the deadlift example because we've been, been working with that. So I'll, you know, step on the bands and I'll, you know, come up to where my hands are just below the knees and I'm going to hold this position for 90 seconds. And then I relax, I, you know, for 30, 45 seconds, and then I grab the band and then I do five reps, full reps uh, with the band. And I'm not going to failure, they're, they're not super hard, but... Uh, I'm getting that movement in. I'm getting, because they're bands, I'm also getting a little bit of that speed element. And so my, my idea is that you're, you're training the tension, right? The skill of creating tension is one thing. The skill of applying that movement or that tension to a movement is another thing. And so that's kind of my thought process is, is that you're going to train the skill of creating tension with the isometric hold. And then you're going to train it immediately show the brain immediately this is the movement pattern that we want to use this tension in and so you're you're training the body to produce that tension in that movement pattern and linking those two things immediately for your brain to uh to make that link and so um so anyway so that's kind of the been my idea something i've been playing around with and uh you know i've been feeling good been having some good results with it it's only been a few weeks that I've really been been doing this, and so I'll uh, report back more with it. But I will most likely be doing some videos and some programs around this strategy because it uh, definitely seems to hold a lot of promise. It's very time efficient; doesn't take a lot of time. Um, bands uh, are are easy for you to use at home; they don't cost much. Easy to store, easy to travel with, and so really just a great uh, um, um, option for for training. So be excited to share more of that with you guys so all right so finally got our uh, bro science and so again the bro science the idea behind this is i'm digging around looking at studies that look interesting and then you know sharing them with you and then giving you my take it's where the bro science comes in uh kind of my interpretation of what the study means for us as mountain bikers so the the study that i came across 
that I want to share with you guys this time is it's the role of emotions on pacing strategy for middle and long distance events. So there's a couple things that I got from this, um, this study. And one is pacing strategy. Now that may not be a term that a lot of people are familiar with, but pacing strategy is something that's actually used a lot more uh, in coaching circles and, and um, you know, high-level high athletes are talking more about this because it's a better uh, term to use rather than cardio training. Like cardio training is a little bit of like isolation training. Like, you know, I'm going to try to isolate my tricep, right? I'm going to try to isolate my cardio system. You can't isolate your cardio system. Your cardio system works uh, it's part of a, a, an overall larger organism, a bigger system. It's, it's one system that's part of a bigger system. And so the term cardio training kind of implies that we are separating cardio from everything else. But, you know, kind of like I was talking about with the power training thing earlier, there's so many elements, especially for a mountain biker, that go into how you do. And so cardio is just one of those elements. And so your pacing strategy is your is just that it's your overall strategy for how you are going to pace yourself and you know a lot of people this is the thing they hear the term pacing and they automatically it's a dirty word because oh you're taking it easy you're pacing yourself that's not what it is everybody paces himself Usain Bolt paces himself when he's running the 100 meters because if he doesn't pace himself he's either going to go too slow or he's going to go too fast and not finish like there is a specific pace that's perfect for him and he trains that pace and that, that that's what athletes top athletes are doing really is they're training the pace that they need to be competitive in their sport and so uh so focusing on on a pacing strategy as opposed to trying to isolate cardio training um, it's just a better thing to focus on. It's kind of a side thing, but like I said, the, if you're not familiar with what pacing strategy even means, then it's hard to make sense of like what this study is trying to tell us. Uh, the other thing that I got from this was the scientific term for bonking. This was awesome. They called it uh, catastrophic biological failure. And again, it's not like they refer, they said pacing strategy, basically the definition of pacing strategy is just that. It's the... It's the strategy of energy expenditure that an athlete takes to avoid catastrophic biological failure. It took me a minute to, what the fuck, what? And I'm like, oh, they're talking about bonking. That's the scientific term for bonking, hitting the wall. And I was like, well, I like that. So CBF, right? I'm going to try to introduce that into the uh, mountain biking lexicon. You're no longer bonking. You're, uh, you're, you're hitting CBF, bro. You got catastrophic biological failure going on there. Um, but anyway, so pacing strategy is just that. Like I said, it's your energy expenditure strategy so that you avoid catastrophic biological failure where basically you have expended more energy than your body can keep up with and you still have work to do, you know, boom, you, you can't do it. So what was interesting was that, like I said, they were looking at the role of emotions on your pacing strategy. And so the conclusion from the study was that, uh, I'm going to quote here, we suggest that training sessions teach the athlete to select optimal pacing strategies by associating a level of emotion with the ability to maintain that pace for exercises of different durations. That pacing strategy is then adopted in future events. 
Finally, we propose novel perspectives to max perspectives to maximize performance and to avoid overtraining by paying attention also to the emotional state in the training process. So, what does that mean? What are we saying here? Your uh, your emotional state matters. Okay, I, I've talked about this before when it comes to recovery and, and things like that. That um, you have to take your everything into account and your emotions count. And so, if you uh, let's say, for example, like you're you you just dread of this working out. You know, the workouts suck. They're hard. Like there's a very negative emotion attached to training, man. You're going to be very one. It's going to be tough to maintain that, but you're not going to. You're going to be way less likely to adopt these pacing strategies that you're working on in your actual event because you attach these negative emotions to it. So when you try to go there, you're going to be thinking like, "Oh my god, this is going to hurt so bad." Because you know, I remember how this hurt so bad when I was training and. So it's actually going to affect you negatively emotionally to try to do that. So to avoid that, a lot of people are just going to keep doing what they're comfortable with. And so um, you know, this may be one of the reasons that you see people who are uh, you know great in training, but they don't do so well in, when it's time to perform. Like there's a lot of things going on there. But if you don't enjoy training, and again, training is going to there's a certain amount of pain. There's a certain amount of, it's a struggle, right? You're not going to avoid all pain and discomfort when there's a struggle. But there's a sweet spot where the pain is positive and you can feel that it's positive and and, and you enjoy the training process because you know you're getting better. And so if you enjoy your training process, you're going to be way more likely to actually improve your performance you know if you if you just if it sucks man and all these negative emotions are attached to it uh yeah i just don't think you know you may kill it in the workouts but you don't want to do that when you're racing you know like your body your brain is is like no no i don't want to do that i don't want to go there i hate doing that and so why am i going to do it now and um yeah it's just it's funny man we forget it all comes down to what does the brain see we're training the brain at the end of the day we're training the brain and so if you can train the have your hard workouts where you're trying to improve your fitness and you can have make sure you're attaching a positive emotion to it. This is why I think music is so popular. People really like to listen to music when they train because it keeps them in a it affects their emotions. Music definitely affects your emotions on a in a strong way. And so if you have you know, music that puts you in a positive mood and you're, I mean, we've all had this, right? Like you're uh, dragging ass a little bit through a workout and then your favorite songs comes on and you're like, yeah, man, okay, I got this. And, you know, things are all better from there. And so, uh, so that can definitely help. The problem though is if you don't listen to music when you compete. So, you know, you either want to, if you're always associating that positive emotion from training with music then you may have a tough time also associating that positive emotion without the music. And so I would, you know, caution you to, you know, uh, you know, uh, make good use or you know, don't always listen to music when you train. Uh, especially if you don't listen to music when you compete. This is like, you know, wearing a heart rate monitor. If you don't, you know, 
uh, anyway, sorry, that's a different thing. But you know, so many people base their training on heart rate training off the, outside of competition. And then competition, they're, they're not doing heart rate. They're going based on RPE, like how do I feel? And so, again, kind of goes back to that pay, paying attention to how you feel and that being a, a huge factor for you to, to pay attention to and train that just as much as you're training the, the physical side of it. Um, and also the flip side is be willing to modify your workouts when your emotional state isn't the best. So, hey, man, sometimes life kicks you and then kicks you again when you're down. And, you know, you're going to pick yourself back up, but there's definitely a point in time, a period where it's like, okay, my, I'm just not as emotionally strong while I'm dealing with these things as I usually am. And so I have energy going towards dealing with these things. I cannot put the same amount of energy into training. And so, uh, again, like using that, um, you know, paying attention to that emotional state and modifying your workout uh, based on that can really help. So kind of on a side note to this, this is one of the, the reasons I like to use the Morpheus uh, recovery training tool that measures your heart rate variability because, again, it, it, it looks at like your body knows when you're under stress, whether it's emotional stress or physical stress or all of it. It's all combined. And so having a tool that can help you objectively look at the total amount of stress that you're under and then making training decisions based on that, you know, really helps rather than just ignoring, like thinking like, ah, oh, dude, how I feel today does not affect my training. And it does both positively and negatively. So um, just keep that in mind uh, while you're training. And uh, yeah, so anyways, so that's it for uh, for this podcast. Uh, I think we covered some some good stuff. And again, if you're in the Fruita or Grand Junction area or plan on visiting, hit me up at james at bikejames.com if you want to you know, come in for a session. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of info up on any info up right now. Uh, we're still getting the website and things put together, but we can get you some info. And again, I got the 730 Thursday workout that uh, you can come to. And if you have any thoughts on stuff I talked about in the podcast here, any questions, anything you want to see me cover in future podcasts, shoot me an email there at james at bikejames.com. I am always happy to help. It's what I'm here for. So uh, again, check me out at bikejames.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. get a free 30-day workout. You can all sorts of free stuff you can get there. You can get a free ramping isometric workout, a free kettlebell workout. Um, yeah, all sorts of uh, free stuff to help you get started using a good strength and mobility training to help you improve your riding. So all right, well, I guess that's going to do it for this week and or this month. I guess well, hopefully, uh, yeah, keep these things going on the monthly rhythm. That's kind of what I got planned. So I will uh, yeah, talk to everybody next month.